You're listening to Messy Jesus Business, a podcast about radical gospel living. Hi, everyone. I'm Sister Julia Walsh, a writer, spiritual director, and jail minister living in Chicago. Welcome to The Mess. At Messy Jesus Business, we explore how the mess of radical gospel living brings disciples into a life of struggle as we advocate for social justice, live simply, serve others, practice contemplation, and live in community. And now, on to our guest. Sister Nicole Trahan is a native of Orange, Texas, and a member of the Daughters of Mary Immaculate. She serves her congregation as a member of the Provincial Leadership Team, Vocations Director, and Director of the Pre-Novitiate Program. She's also a part-time campus minister at Camaldade Julian Catholic High School. With master's degrees in Catholic school leadership and pastoral ministry, Sister Nicole has a background in teaching theology, collegiate and secondary campus ministry, retreat design and leadership, and spiritual accompaniment. She has a passion for faith formation and leadership development, especially for young people. This passion is matched by her dedication to seeking justice. She is also a regular contributor to National Catholic Reporter's Global Sisters Report and enjoys writing on various topics. Sister Nicole currently calls Dayton, Ohio home. In this episode of Messy Jesus Business, I talk with Sister Nicole about the Marianist charism and how she became a Marianist sister. We talk about how it's vital to de-center Eurocentric mindsets in order for the church to become more inclusive and equitable. We discuss privilege, why it's important to notice who benefits from the status quo and imagine new ways to share power. We also talk about why Catholic schools need to teach the dark side of Catholic church history and how we are called to truth-telling and transformation. Enjoy. Hi, Sister Nicole. Welcome to Messy Jesus Business. Hi, Sister Julia. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here with you. Yeah, you're a Marinus sister and you're in Ohio. Mm -hmm. And I know you wear many hats. So let's just start (laughs) with with talking about like the many hats you wear. and, And then from there, hear a little bit about how you became such a a person with many hats. <laughs> Such a hat person. Uh, <laughs> no, sure. I, I don't even know if I've ever seen you wear a hat, literally. No. <laughs> My many roles. So currently, I am a part-time campus minister at a high school. I am the vocations director and director of our pre-novitiate. So I accompany women who are considering the possibility of marrying this religious life. And then I walk with them through that first year of formation. Mm. And then I am also on our provincial leadership team as uh, the head of education. Our roles are based on a system that was developed by our founder uh, in the mid 19th century. So my role is called head of education. 
And I am also recently elected to the board of the National Religious Vocation Conference. Those are some of my hats. Wow. The most important ones, I guess. And you are, am I remembering correctly, are just about to start a doctorate program in education as well? You know, I just started it in the summer. It's through Gonzaga. It's a, an EDD in educational leadership through which I will design a project to be carried out in my context in the school where I work. Mm. Um, now, the, you asked earlier about how did I come to be wearing so many hats, and that's a great question. Maybe I have a problem saying no, but um, <laughs> also, I think more seriously, we are a very small province. Our congregation is international, about 300 or so sisters worldwide, and we're divided right now in provinces, pretty much by country. And our province is very small in terms of numbers. And so many of us wear several hats. And it's not as overwhelming, I suppose, as some people might think it is just because there aren't as many of us as there are of some other congregations. So Mm -hmm. many of us wear several hats. Mm -hmm. I think I remember you telling me once that it was just like a couple dozen Marianist sisters in the United States. Oh, not even two dozen. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So you really are small. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And how would you sum up the Marianist uh, charism? Hmm. I would sum up the Marianist charism by saying we seek to transform society by building communities of faith in the way that Mary did, exhibiting Mary, Mary's characteristics, bringing a sense of presence and justice and compassion and mercy. You know, Mary was never seeking to be the center of attention. And I I believe that that's the way that we work. We don't necessarily seek the spotlight or need to be in charge of things necessarily, but we're happy to be supportive and enable people to, to take on roles of leadership. One of our mottos is do whatever he tells you. It was what Mary said to the servants at the wedding feast at Cana. And we see her telling us the same to do whatever he tells us. So another aspect of our charism is that we seek to be formed by Mary. Mary formed the person of Jesus. Like he learned how to be a human being from Mary. And so we ask her to form us and to help us form others into a better imitation of Jesus in the same way that she did with him. Mm, that's beautiful. Thank you so much. I'm so inspired and, <laughs> and, <laughs> and motivated to increase my <laughs> devotion to Mary. So thanks for that. <laughs> yeah. And so how did you end up a Marianist sister? Have you always had a love of her? I wouldn't say that I've always had a love of her. Mary was a constant in my life. You know, I grew up Catholic and the grade school that I went to was St. Mary's, the parish that I went to throughout high school, St. Mary's, the parish I belonged to in college was St. Mary's, (laughs) the university I went to for my graduate studies, St. Mary's. So Um, there was a theme, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, and my mother's name is Mary. Oh, okay. So Mary was a constant, but when I was younger, you know, the way that Mary was portrayed for me was not something that I, I didn't feel that I could relate to her. She didn't seem 
to be real. She didn't seem to be a person because she was so venerated, I suppose rightly so, as a woman who was perfect and obedient and docile in a way that I that was not accessible to me. <laughs> she didn't seem that didn't seem possible, you know. Mm. Um, so this image of her was so much a part of me that she didn't seem human. She didn't seem like someone I could even possibly imitate, you know, because she was so out of reach. So I wouldn't say that I had a love for her necessarily. I had a respect. I had a, a sense of awe, I suppose. Love came later when I began to understand her as a person, when I began to, to, to delve into what does scripture really say? And not only what does scripture say, but what does it imply? Mm-hmm. I suppose, you know, because let's say the wedding feast at Cana, which I talked about a second ago. So here's this woman in a society that didn't value women at all. She was young ish at that time. And she was at a wedding that we don't know whether or not it had much to do with her at all, you know, relatives or whatnot, but she was bold enough to do something about a need, right? She, she didn't just worry about it or fret about it, but she spoke up to the servants and, you know, told them what to do. And there must've been something about her person that would inspire the servants to listen to her. Like, why would they listen to her? They weren't her servants. So there was, there was something about her that was much more bold, courageous, a human than I had ever really thought about. So it wasn't until I began to look at scripture in a different way or to see her in a different light that a love could develop. So to answer your question, how did I become a Marianist sister? I wasn't even, I wasn't thinking about religious life for most of my life. I had sisters in grade school. I had sisters in high school. I didn't even know what congregation they were from. They never talked about it. I don't remember them talking about vocations or discernment or encouraging people to think about religious life. That was just not a conversation. I feel like I had nothing in common with them. So it never really occurred to me that I could or should think about that. But I met the Marianists when I was teaching in San Antonio at a Marianist high school and working on my master's at a Marianist university. And I fell in love with the charism. I fell in love with the people. I fell in love with this sense of family. You know, the Marianists, it's not just the Marianist sisters, you know, it's the Marianist sisters and the Marianist brothers and priests and lay Marianists all working together in a common mission and being what we call, we call it a a discipleship of equals. We're all in this together. A title or a gender (laughs) doesn't give anyone any more voice than someone else or Mm -hmm. more importance than anyone else. Uh, And I was inspired by that because I had never really seen that before modeled in the church. And so that, that attracted me. And I felt like when I met the Marianist family, because I met lay Marianists and the sisters and the brothers and priests all around the same time. And they were always a part of my, my world at that time. I felt like everything that I had tried to be or everything that I wanted to be finally had a name. And I was like, oh, that, that's what I'm trying to be. I'm trying to be like them. I'm trying to be Marianist. And mm-hmm. so that, that drew me in. 
So I became a lay Marianist first for three years. And then I asked myself the question, why have I never considered religious life? Why did I not think about it or give it a fair shot? And there was a lot of fear there, but I thought, you know, I'm not going to know if that's like, if that life is possible for me, unless I try. Mm -hmm. So I tried. <laughs> I'm still here. <laughs> here you are. Yeah. And, and what year did you make your final vows? My final vows were in 2013. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, I knew it was before me and I was, I was in 2015. So, right. You are here <laughs> and you are <laughs> yep. living the life and doing the things and, and serving God's people. And, it, you know, and, and even though you jokingly said that you, maybe you wear a lot of hats because it's hard for you to say no, <laughs> what I actually am hearing is beautiful is the imitation of Mary and that you really are saying yes to whatever he tells you to do. And, and I just, hope that you notice that in yourself, like you are truly living your charism and, and that's, that's admirable and inspiring. So thank you so much. Thank you. I honestly, I had not put it together in quite that way. So that is something for me to reflect on. Thank you for that. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> Who knew? Okay. <laughs> Oh, man. Okay, so my friend, I would love to talk to you about one of your favorite topics and something that's very important to me as well, which is racial justice, equity and inclusion. I know that that's part of what your focus is going to be in your doctorate program for education, but uh, here we are Catholic sisters and God have mercy, we know our Catholic Church has done a lot of harm. So what are your thoughts about what we need to focus on or what steps we can take in order to build up a church that is more inclusive to the beautiful diversity that God has created in humanity? That is such a big question. I know. I'm um, sorry. And, no. and I know we don't have, like, we could write books on this. <laughs> yeah. And there are books on it. I mean, that's such a huge question to say, what should we focus on or what, because there's no panacea, I guess you can say. It, no. It's a very complex issue. And there are a lot of factors and a lot of influences that have brought us to where we are right now. And so in order to, to move forward, the answer is very complex and it's all tangled in a web of injustice, I guess. Um, so to begin to unravel this messiness, this web of unjust structures and systems and, and attitudes, I find that, and this is something that Brian Massengale has talked about before in many different ways for so long in our nation, in our church, I suppose, writ large, Catholicism has equaled European or Eurocentric culture. It's the norm. It's not even seen as separate from Catholicism. It's like mm. Catholic equals these norms and these behaviors that are really entrenched in a Eurocentric mindset, right? And because it's the norm, it's not easy to see. <laughs> it's not easy to to say or for people to even imagine what it might mean to be Catholic without that. Mm. And so how do you even begin to separate the two? Yeah. Uh, yeah. How do you even begin to say what does it mean to be Catholic 
without being Eurocentric. Like, let's move the Vatican to South Africa or something. (laughs) I don't (laughs) think that's going to (laughs) happen. No. Sorry, just a crazy idea. (laughs) (laughs) No, I like it. But uh, I, don't, I don't think that's going to happen. No, Although, I, don't I mean, the, you know, the church is really growing and flourishing in what's called what the global south, right? Mm-hmm. So that's something we need to pay attention to mm-hmm. um, because the demographics of the church are shifting quickly. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to have to deal with that. We're going to have to struggle through that over the course of the next, I mean, who's to say how long, but not long. <laughs> it won't take long for that. I don't think. And even if you look just within our country, the demographics are shifting pretty quickly. Uh, the church is growing in the in the South and in the Southwest and shrinking in the Midwest and the East Coast. It's growing among populations of color and shrinking among the white population. So that we're going to have to grapple with that, you know? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. As you say all that, what comes to mind for me is suddenly feeling ironic that in my own story and uh, you know own my own faith development when I was exploring the questions of my own Catholic identity and whether I wanted to to stay in this church or or be a Christian in another denomination like a lot of young people do <laughs> at mm-hmm. certain parts of their life I came to realize that the thing I loved about being Catholic was it's universality, of course, mm-hmm. and it's globalism is diversity. Like that's what that that's what caused me to fall in love with the church besides its justice teachings. And then, you know, I also developed love for an appreciation for the sacraments and devotions. But overall, it just thrilled me to think about like the structure of mass in the little white farming community that I grew up in in Iowa was the same structure of liturgy that that people in Soweto, South Africa, we're praying, you know, and, and, mm-hmm. and there was, we were gathering around the same table and yes, they were singing and dancing and they had drums at their mass and mine had an organ, <laughs> right? <laughs> but, like, right. but, but we were, all, we're all brothers and sisters in Christ. And that is, that is the reign of God alive that mm-hmm. right. And to have mm-hmm. that, that sense of like, th- this is Catholic too. This is Catholic just equally mm-hmm. but how what I grapple with is like I realize I'm a, a rare bird <laughs> from a little town in Iowa who ended up <laughs> in this place of appreciation and like mm-hmm. th- there's an I besides just blabbering on my enthusiasm and love and appreciation I don't know how to transform hearts and minds and help other people to kind of see the richness of of this and to help create spaces that that are safe and inclusive no matter who a person is Mm -hmm. yes how does one begin to transform hearts i think part of what i've seen i guess my experience is that for the most part people are open i believe to change to a certain extent. It's not that the vast majority of people are close to that. You know, I think that the dominant culture continues to benefit from unjust structures and unjust systems. And it's awfully difficult to transform those structures while those who are in power benefit from those structures. 
I think that's really difficult. And it's also difficult to change when people from different backgrounds do not have a voice in the conversation um, or their voice is shut out, not listened to, not present. If you look at the Sony, where I live right now in Dayton, Ohio, if you look at the parishes, the most of the parishes, 90% are highly segregated, highly homogenous groups. And so how does one gain a voice at the table in that sort of situation? And not just in the parish level too. If you look at the hierarchy, if you look at the the offices in archdioceses and dioceses, if you look at who works in those offices and who who has decision-making power, authority, formal authority, it's pretty homogenous, not across the board. Of course, there are some notable exceptions, but it's a small group, (laughs) the exceptions. So it's difficult to shift entire institutions, right? You can change, a person might have a change of heart, an individual, a small group of people might have a change of heart, but to move towards a real transformation of a system, people who are marginalized have to become part of the formal authority in making those changes. I think that's just speaking from my own experience and observations. Yeah, so it's centering communities of color or marginalized groups who have been on the margins. Like, let's take, like, let's instead say, nope, you are at the center of this conversation and what you say has power and weight at this time. Yes, I think so. I know that for some people maybe listening to this or others might say, well, if we center authority there, then we're being exclusive of the dominant voice, right? But for so long, the voices of people of color have been marginalized, shut down, shut out, that in order to bring back some sense of equity, then for a moment, (laughs) we have to highlight the voices that have been muted and mute the voices that have been dominant in order to bring a sense of of equity because otherwise if the the dominant voice continues to be so loud and then you try to bring in the other group without muting the dominant voice a little then you're still going to have that power dynamic right it makes me think of like last summer during the well i would like to call it like a revolution of sorts during the black lives matter movement and after george floyd's murder and how there was sort of these trends on, on social media and so forth that were like, hey, pass the mic, white people, and let a person of color take over your social media account for a while, especially if you have a large audience. And I observed some others in the white community do that. And it was really challenged to think about my in my own life and how do I shut up more? <laughs> and how do I listen more, you know? And, mm-hmm. and like, who am I giving the microphone to? And who, and who, I mean, like, who, who am I giving a space to say what they want to say? So that's part of the reason why Messy Jesus Business podcast and blog is, you know, I'm, I expanded who is writing for it. And I'm trying to, the show isn't just about me blathering on, but it's, it's about 
about me interviewing people who have who have more intelligence or knowledge or something than I do. I don't know about that. But what wisdom, I, whatever. Experience. <laughs> they have a but they have a different perspective. So oh, and mm-hmm. that is and that perspective is enriching and it's necessary. So it makes so much sense to me. And and yet I grapple with the tension of how do I as a white person, step back and then at the same time share the privilege that that I don't deserve. How do I say like, be, I I have this privilege and I want it to share it. So, sometimes it's about stepping back. Sometimes it's about like, oh, I have these resources and these abilities. So do you want to come over here and be with me in it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think how you do that depends on the on the situation. But I I think the biggest thing is to recognize privilege and to recognize that there are well just the definition of privilege that there are things you've been given or been able to do or there's a way that you can be in the world that a person like myself might not ever have the ability or the experience of, you know? And so recognizing that I think goes a long way because so many people don't recognize their own privilege, especially when the conversation about white privilege gets so hard when you bring the subject of of class into it or, you know, economics and the disparities there. It's really hard for a person who is a white person who is struggling to say that they are privileged you know mm-hmm. I, that's just a really difficult concept to write wrap your head around and I can't blame them for that that's that's tough but I, so I think though that moving forward the only way to move forward is to be able to recognize and name privilege and to respond accordingly depending on the on the situation you know and there are there are times though where I admit it's difficult. I imagine it would be difficult for someone who is white to to navigate that, although it doesn't mean that they shouldn't try. But that's right. We've got to do the hard stuff. <laughs> right. Because I mean, you know, there will be mistakes or mm-hmm. like, you know, people, people of color like myself might say, you know, it's not my job to to educate all of my white friends about x y or z or it's not my burden to do that or refusing to feel like a token so some of that is very difficult but that shouldn't stop people from trying right because i think if people try with a sincere heart then a lot of good can come of that Hmm. Um, even if you know there's a little bit of messiness in the in the interim Mm. yeah I was in a conversation with another white sister recently who was talking about how her own study and exploration of racial justice has helped her to to recognize how justified the anger is that people of color have and noticing when she feels uncomfortable because of the anger and allow herself to receive, like, be like, oh, they're angry. And I'm uncomfortable and this is not about my comfort, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. And, and, oh, look, that's something as a white person, we have been taught that we are entitled to is comfort, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which is just ridiculous. (laughs) 
right? And so like, those are the sort of subtle things that sort of happen that we don't even realize how this white supremacy in indoctrination has like kind of taught us like to be reactionary when, when we're um, not liking the way someone else is expressing an emotion, even if their emotion and their expression is totally appropriate. And yeah, so so that's that's part of it too that that I think I'm learning about, and I'm just trying to recognize that in the messiness, I might stumble and I might fail and I might mess up and I might be super awkward. And as long as my banner over my head doesn't say like I'm an anti-racist ally, but instead is more like I'm trying, <laughs> I'm really trying here, <laughs> right? And I yeah. and like then then maybe I'm showing up in a way that's authentic and and proper and is in and, and hopefully cr- helping to create some some places of of equity inclusion in our church and in our world more broadly. I think that's a very good point. Yeah, to say, you know, I'm trying. We're all trying, right? We're that's all we can do. But the folks who say I am an anti-racist or I am an ally as if they've achieved, you know, they've, they've reached the pinnacle yeah, and that's yeah, like, all they can congratulations. do. Congratulations. Uh, How yeah. did you earn that gold star? <laughs> there's a, there's a, a lack of humility in that that right. I, I think is an obstacle. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think humility is, is key, really. Mm. So, yeah. Over and over, we learn, we change, we grow. We stumble, we admit that we're weak and broken. That's so much a part of who we are as Catholics, right? So you'd <laughs> think that that would be second nature, <laughs> but it's, it's not. I think another thing that really needs to, to shift in some way, you know, when I reflect back on the fact that I've gone to Catholic schools my whole life, except for my undergraduate experience, and I recognize, and this, I didn't recognize this until I was older, that all of the injustices that have happened because of the church, right? When I think about the fact that the slaveholding history of the church was not something that I learned in school. I I read it, I heard it as an adult outside of school. I think that we need to come to terms with our history as well and admit the past wrongs. (laughs) And, you know, there's all sorts of talk about reparations and how do you mend what was broken or how do you reconcile what was so hurt? And I I can't even wrap my head around what that would mean, you know, to do that justly. But we have to somehow look at what, what has happened and look at the role that the church played in the history of the United States and its white supremacy and injustices towards people of color. So it's the personal humility and the personal trying and the bringing in voices to the table and and muting a little bit the, the dominant voice, but it's also like looking back and allowing the looking back to transform who we are now as an institution. I want to move us to our last questions, but I appreciate your encouragement to do some truth telling and reconciliation process of some sort and to lament and repent and try to restore. And ultimately, let's pray that the spirit guides us through that and that that Christ 
who is the redeemer? We're not the redeemer here, <laughs> right? Is the right. one who will help help us mend uh, the wounds of history that that have really harmed our church and and our relationships. You've already mentioned the word messy a couple times, <laughs> and I'd like to hear what it means for you to be a disciple. You mentioned the word discipleship as well, or uh, that mm-hmm. the Marinists are a community of disciples. So first, what does discipleship mean for you? Hmm. Discipleship means becoming a better imitation of Christ in our world. It means studying, I suppose, the person of Jesus, his values, his teachings, relationships, and saying, what, what can I learn from that? And then trying to live that out in the world. It sounds to me like the sort of thing you're doing as you wear all these different hats and you're thinking about how to wear them. I mean, I try. I mean, like you were saying earlier, (laughs) all we can do is try. That's, that's my, that's my hope. One of our founders once wrote that we try to live the most perfect imitation of Jesus Christ, son of God, become son of Mary for the salvation of the world. And that so much for me encapsulates what it means to be a disciple. So we try to live the most perfect imitation of Jesus Christ. So we, like I said, we study who Jesus is and values and actions and words. And we try to, to take that into ourselves, recognizing ourselves as a child of God, uh, recognizing other people as a child of God. And allowing ourselves to be, and this is very Marianist, but allowing ourselves to be formed by Mary who formed her son as the human person that he was. Mm. So for me, that, that sentence is what it means to be a disciple, to try to live the most perfect imitation of Jesus Christ, son of God, become son of Mary for the salvation of the world. And, and that for the salvation of the world is really important, right? Because for so many people in our world, discipleship is very individual and um it's a me and jesus sort of thing if me Mm -hmm. and jesus are fine then you know we're good but all of that means nothing if you've Mm. left your brothers and sisters in the dust you know it's kind of like the letter of saint james that says what good is it if you say to a person take care be safe be well fed but you don't actually meet those needs then your your faith is not right so that that last piece for the salvation of the world and i see that as building the reign of god right mm-hmm. trying to make this world what god envisions for us and and that's part of taking on the being a more perfect imitation of jesus but sometimes i feel that it has to be explicitly stated for people that it's not mm-hmm. just about us and our following of jesus as a a person of faith but it it means that we are concerned for the common good and we are concerned for the well-being of all people because they are also children of God. Amen. Amen. That's beautiful. Thank you. And to conclude, to just sum it all up, <laughs> what would you say is messy about all this? <laughs> Everything. Of course. Well, what I say is messy about all this is that we're human and people are human and we are a mess of contradiction. And 
foibles and sinfulness. So navigating through that, not only our own, but in relationship and the humanity of groups of people, you know, and finding our way through the sinfulness and the misguidedness, I suppose. And because there are, there can be two people who really believe that they are living the gospel and really believe that they're trying to live a more perfect imitation of Jesus, who will disagree on what that means and how to do it and where to do it. And so the fact that so much is subjective, I think, makes it very messy, Mm. you know, and people's experiences are so vastly different in many ways. And that influences the way that you, you live your faith, right? So I think that makes it messy. I believe, though, that the messiness doesn't have to be an obstacle. It can be a grace because a lot of times it's the messiness that causes transformation. If we actually like walk through it and love each other through it, it can be transformational. I think love is the operative word there, right? And seek that. So, yeah, I think it's, (laughs) I think life is messy because we're sinful people, but we can help each other grow through it with a little bit of love and perseverance. (laughs) Amen. Thank God we're in this together. (laughs) And by God's designs, we're in a community where everybody is a little (laughs) bit of a mess. (laughs) It's true. We're not alone in our messiness at all. (laughs) Oh, thank you, Nicole, for coming on the show. And thanks for all you're doing and blessing so much. Oh, this was very fun. Thank you. I invite you to join me in this contemplative moment. Sister Nicole referenced a story from the Gospels, the wedding feast at Cana, where Mary asks her son to change water into wine. I'd like to share that scripture with you now. If you can, I invite you to close your eyes and breathe deeply as you listen and pray. Notice if certain words or phrases from the passage stick out for you. Is there a particular message that God wants you to hear today? A reading from the Gospel of John, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the wedding. And when the wine ran short, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, how does your concern affect me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servers, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for Jewish ceremonial washings, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus told them, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it. 
And when the head waiter tasted the water that had become wine, without knowing where it came from, although the servers who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves good wine first, and then, when people have drunk freely, an inferior one. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this as the beginning of his signs in Cana in Galilee, and so revealed his glory, and his disciples began to believe in him. After this, he and his mother, brothers, and his disciples went down to Capernaum and stayed there only a few days. That's it for this episode of Messy Jesus Business. Thanks for listening. Messy Jesus Business is produced and hosted by me, Sister Julia Walsh, and edited by Cherish Bedzinski. You can find us online at MessyJesusBusiness.com and on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon. If you like what you heard, please be sure to mention our podcast to your friends and followers. And we'd love to have your support via Patreon. From the bottom of our hearts and the middle of the mess, thank you. Messy Jesus Business is produced in partnership with the Franciscan Sisters of Perpetual Adoration. You can learn more about our religious community and donate to our mission at www.fspa.org. I'm Sister Julia Walsh, and I'll catch up with you next time. Until then, peace and all good.